Welcome to this episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today we're talking about discipline, punishment, and bodies. Tell us about it, Cal. Yeah, so we're going to look at the wire uh, through kind of a post-structuralist lens, uh, specifically with Michel Foucault. Okay. Okay. And what is post-structuralist Okay, mean? so I'll tell you. So okay. Michel Foucault is a French philosopher and a post-structuralist. Um, and so post-structuralism is a way of studying how knowledge is produced. And it says that because history and culture condition the study of structures, both are subject to bias and misinterpretation. So basically saying no knowledge is solid or permanent. Okay, so like with, yeah, like if stories, history is just stories. And yeah. the, the people that tell the stories are the ones who get to like frame it, right? Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, I guess post-colonialism is one way of thinking about post-structuralism. Like the people that write the history books are shaping the narrative. Um, and so Michel Foucault specifically looks at uh, social control through social institutions. So we're going to talk about a text called Discipline and Punish from 1975, hmm. which we can put in our show notes. Yeah, for sure. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, and when Foucault was writing about Discipline and Punishment, where was he specifically talking about crime or was he just talking about punishment in general so it starts talking about crime and uh then kind of moves into how punishment becomes like a specter in society and you don't actually have to exact the punishment in order to keep people in line so Hmm. um basically the the whole text is charting how new codes of law and order develop over time so a couple things to think about as we're going to have this conversation about the wire is that Punishment is a complex social function, and it's also a political tactic. So the way that we use punishment is a way of shaping that narrative of power, as we talked about at the opening. Okay, and like, as a person, so I took criminology, and we talked a lot about, is punishment a deterrent to crime? So like, does knowing what the punishment will be if you're caught for the crime deter you from the crime? And actually, the answer is no. Right. It's it's this certainty of being caught that is deterrent, not the punishment itself. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that Foucault says as well. Um, and so I'll give like kind of a brief overview. Uh, he starts with a chapter on punishment of the past and specifically talks about how it used to be that punishment was this public almost exercise in humiliation but also um kind of like it was retribution it was not meant to be a rehabilitation or uh the way that we are kind of thinking about uh crime and punishment in modern terms so basically like witch hunts public hangings getting burned at the stake yeah so let's uh i'll read a, a quote here from uh part one of discipline and punish and it says The public execution is to be understood not only as a judicial, but also as a political ritual. It belongs, even in minor cases, to the ceremonies by which power is manifested. Hmm. Um, And that's that humiliation uh, element. So uh, getting the whole town to come out to watch. Yeah, and it's about, um, like, spectacle, basically. Okay. Um, And so... 
like, I think when we look at The Wire, like, let's look at season one and think about when do we see punishment as being kind of spectacleized or publicized in a way that is about building up power and building up uh, humiliation to keep, like, the, you know, the lesser class down. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I guess one of the prime examples that comes to mind for me is Lester's um, over and over talking about his time in the pawn shop unit. No. No. Well, I think that's fine, but we're going to get later in this conversation to something that aligns much more closely with that. What I was going (laughs) to say was uh, Presbo, when him and Carver and Herc all go down to, like, the low rises at 2 in the morning – when Presbo cocks the kid. Oh, so even just that overt violence. Yeah. Okay. Spectacle violence. Right. Okay, as okay. punishment. Right. And the reason that that happens in the scene is, um, you know, the kid's like leaning on Presbo's car and Presbo says, move shitbird. And he says, I'm not doing nothing. And so Presbo cocks him. And so what's, I think, like indicative of spectacle there is that everyone knows that everyone in the low rises is looking out their window and watching that. Yeah. And so Presbo is making a display of power. Right. Definitely. Okay. And so speaking of spectacle violence, the other obvious example, now that I am with you on this, is Brandon, Omar's boyfriend. Yeah. So definitely. Brandon gets punished tortured um, because of Omar's, uh, like, robbing the stash house. Mm -hmm. And that's super spectacle because they display his body out for everyone to see. And you can contrast that to Bailey, the other guy in their little three-man crew, who is just shot without spectacle. But it's probably Brandon's relationship to Omar that causes him to receive the torture and the spectacle. Yeah. Definitely. Um, But so what Foucault says is that this method of spectacle punishment and discipline started to decrease and became much less of a public uh, display once we started institutionalizing punishment through things like the prison system. So it wasn't anymore that there was public hangings, then it was, it moved into incarceration, which was like, that's not a spectacle. That is exacting the punishment on the body in a different way. Right. And in some ways allows for more insidious abuses of power. Yeah. And so, like... Because what, it's behind closed doors. Yeah. And what Foucault says is that, yes, prison has an effect on the body, whether it's, you know, isolation or starvation or um, just discomfort. But... The punishment isn't directed at the body. It's directed at the soul. Uh-huh. So I'll read another passage here, which says, this is from Foucault. He says, punishment then will tend to become the most hidden part of the penal process. Its effectiveness is seen as resulting from its inevitability, not from its visible intensity. It is the certainty of being punished and not the horrifying spectacle of public punishment that must discourage crime. As a result, justice no longer takes public responsibility for the violence that is bound up with its practice. If it too strikes, if it too kills, it is not as a glorification of its strength, but as an element of itself that is, it is obliged to tolerate that it finds difficult to account for. Okay. So, and as you said, this becomes a little bit more insidious, especially in the prison system, mm-hmm. because the public narrative or that power 
um, you know, the story of power that we talked about at the opening is that, oh, we're not punishing people's bodies. Mm-hmm. If it happens to be violent, that's not part of the system. That's an aberration. Right. When really but it's we not. Know that. Yeah. And there was that psychological experiment, I think that was also done in the 70s, where they split just the group of regular people into two groups. And they said... One of you are the prison guards, the other of you are the prisoners. Yeah, that was the Stanford prison experiment. Right, and it went horribly awry. They realized that by giving the guard group power, they actually sort of turned them into monsters. Yeah, because then they're wielding too much power. And I think if we think about, this is, you know, somewhat timely because... That video just came out, I think, last week of the Baltimore police officer, like, oh, just yeah. wailing on the guy in the street. Yeah. Um, like, obviously, excessive force. And we see that displayed in The Wire as well. Yeah. Through Presbo, but also through people like Colicchio, Herc. Yeah. Um, it's, the system can obscure responsibility for that by presenting it as an anomaly. Even though we know by thinking about Foucault that the specter of the violence is part of the social control. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all the black kids in Baltimore know that that possibility of violence is inherent in how they could be punished. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's really interesting. Yeah, so now... I guess the punishment of the soul, to me, in a lot of ways, it moves from this sort of biblical eye for an eye thing with the public hanging, right? Of you kill someone, you're killed by the people. Yeah. And instead of eye for an eye, some might argue a more progressive standpoint of saying, well, if you murder somebody, we won't overtly kill you, but you'll be put away. And they also position it, of course, as safety for the community. Safer if the if we put these people behind closed doors. Yeah, and like so, thinking about eye for an eye, there are still states that have capital punishment. Yeah, and so it's interesting to think about, like, what does that mean, and what what is the underlying reason for that? And it's hard to think of anything other than it being yeah retribution. Yeah. So okay, so moving forward a little bit. Uh, what Foucault then says is once, you know, so spectacle is gone, uh, the body of the criminal disappears from public view. So punishment as spectacle is over. Um, and so it's not the horror of the punishment that is the deterrent. It is the, I guess, as you said before, like the getting caught. Yeah, knowing that you'll for sure get caught. Yeah, so uh, let's think about season two now because then Foucault says that Um, As I said, the punishment moves from the body to the soul, and he writes, Physical pain, the pain of the body itself, is no longer the constituent element of the penalty. From being an art of unbearable sensations, punishment has become an economy of suspended rights. Uh Which is like, that is clearly what, the way that prison operates. Like, they suspend all your rights to, you know. And I think in the U.S., once you, well, Cuddy actually tells us this in season four when he's being asked to vote, uh, or maybe it's season, yeah, it's season four. He's being encouraged to vote, and he says, no, I can't. And then they're like, why? And it's because he has a criminal record. So he loses his right to even have an input in the democratic process. Well, and this is a decades-long form of 
voter suppression in the states because mm-hmm. the incarceration rates for the black population is so much higher. Yeah. Largely because of like things like the war on drugs, which like you know, the punishments were exacted upon black bodies before they were exacted on white bodies. Yeah. And now we're seeing the results of that like 30 plus years later. It's a cycle of oppression that yeah. feeds itself. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that makes us think about, you know, it's in the pilot when uh, I think it's Herc says, you know, we are success- successful deterrent to the war on drugs when we're out there cracking skulls. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then... Carver says you can't call this shit a war. Let's watch that scene. Okay. What he means to say is that we are an effective deterrent on the war on drugs when we are on the street. Fucking motherfuckers up, wreck. Indeed. Boom. Fuck the paperwork. Clay body, split head. Split them wide. The Western District way. All right. You heroic motherfuckers kill me. Fighting the war on drugs. One brutality case at a time. Girl, you can't even call this shit a war. Why not? Wars end. Huh? Yeah, so Carver's point that wars end speaks to the fact that the war on drugs was not meant to ever end. It's meant to be ongoing. Yeah. To control this population. And it's interesting because this seems to be the first time Herc's ever heard this or it's ever occurred to him because he even writes it down. Yeah. 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 So. Um, so let's think about if we're going to move from punishment from the body to the soul. Like we've talked about that in prison, but I think in the wire, the police do a lot of this as well, mm-hmm. punishing their own by creating an economy of suspended rights. Yeah. So uh, Foucault writes further, Discipline is an art of rank, a technique for the transformation of arrangements. It individualizes bodies by a location that does not give them a fixed position, but distributes them and circulates them in a network of relations. Hmm. So I think that the police squad operates like that. No one's in a fixed position. We see that over the course of five seasons of The Wire, the way people move in and out of different divisions and mm-hmm. um, and the way that they are punished mm-hmm. by getting moved to something lesser in a way so um for instance mcnulty gets moved to the boat right and of course mcnulty there's this repetitive thing of well where don't you want to go yeah mcnulty is not aware of this trick when he says he doesn't want to go in i think it's it is the first episode he says i wouldn't want to go on the boat yeah and that is of course where he ends up and his his reasoning for want not wanting to be on the boat is he says the diesel fumes get to him. Yeah. But when you think about McNulty as, let me just, this is kind of a literal example, but also a symbolic one. But like, if we imagine McNulty as a cowboy, right, of of the force, part of why he thinks he's so, like, like why he loves being a cop is because he loves hearing himself think. He thinks he's always the smartest cop in the room. Yeah. Out on the boat, isolated, he just has one other guy to compare himself to. Yeah, and the other guy is, like, totally checked out. Yeah. You know, he doesn't care, really, about how smart McNulty thinks he is. Uh, yeah. So McNulty doesn't have that enemy anymore to go up against. Exactly. But, so another example of 
you know, the economy of suspended rights in the prison, or in the, sorry, in the police institution, as now you can talk about Lester. Right. So Lester in the pawn shop unit, again, for doing real police work, he yeah. says. So, and his thing was, don't put me, if I need to be demoted, put me back on the street. Let me walk a beat. Let me interact with the people. Let me do real police work. Yeah. But what he is punished with is the pawn shop unit, which when he, we can watch the scene where he describes it. Yeah. So you're police after all. You know what you're doing, but you ain't been doing it. How long you been in the pawn shop unit? 13 years and four months. 13 years and four months. I gotta ask you, what exactly does a police officer assigned to the pawn shop unit do? You intake reports from registered pawn shops on all items valued over $50. Then you make an index card for that item. Then you file that index card. If someone wants to find out if something stolen has been pawned, we look to see if we have an index card. If we do, we do. If we don't, we don't. You did that for 13 years? And four months. Why'd you ask out of homicide? Well, no ask about it. You got the boot? Uh-huh. What'd you do to piss him off? Police work. So he keeps saying, you know, you write a note on the card, you put the card in the box. If someone comes for the card, they get the card. If they don't come for the card, they get it, don't get the card. And, and he, like, talks about the monotony of this. Yeah. For 13, what is it, 13, 13 years? 13 years, four months, four months. five days or something. Yeah. So. Um, and then the third example would be Daniels after um, everything shakes out the way it does at the end of season one, he gets moved to evidence control. Right. The basement. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that all of these three punishments in the wire are confined spaces of some sort. So you talked about how McNulty is like isolated on the boat. The There's only one other person there. Yeah. Um, the pawn shop unit is kind of its own space off, you know, you don't get a lot of like turnover or field like work. Active. Yeah. Uh, and then Daniel's evidence control is in the basement. Yeah. So it's like these units are small, cellular, underground, constricting, uh, which is a reflection of the limited capability that they have yeah. in that role and also reflects how Foucault imagines disciplinary spaces. Right. And if you think of it being about the soul, um, part of what feeds our souls are wide open spaces, being able yeah. to interact with other people, being out in the world. And these folks are trapped where they can they don't even get to exercise their own intellect which yeah. all three of them very have, much value yeah. yeah um so Foucault says about disciplinary spaces I'll read a paragraph here he says disciplinary space tends to be divided into as many sections as there are bodies or elements to be distributed one must eliminate the effects of imprecise distributions, the uncontrolled disappearance of individuals, their diffuse circulation, their unusable and dangerous coagulation. It was a tactic of anti-desertion, anti-vagabondage, anti-concentration. Its aim was to establish presences and absences, to know where and how to locate individuals, to set up useful communications, to interrupt others, to be able at each moment to supervise the conduct of each individual to assess it, to judge it, to calculate its qualities or merits. Yeah. So he's describing a prison system and cells and, you know, watching over prisoners, but he could just as easily be describing the way the police force functions. And it's interesting because, again, it's individualizing people. It's taking them away from numbers where strength is often power. And one thing that I notice is quite absent in a show that focuses on police 
is the discussion of the union. Every now and then the police union is sort of referred to, but I think you could argue now police unions have so much power. Yeah. And it's really for these people because they, they're never officially demoted. They're just put where they don't want to go. So they never have the opportunity to pull strength from numbers with the union. Yeah. Well, and, and that speaks to what Foucault had said earlier, which is that it's the specter of the punishment that keeps people in line. It's Mm -hmm. not the punishment itself. It's, um, you know, Daniel's thinking, well, what's going to, where am I going to get sent if I do X, Y, or Z? Yeah. Um, and just a little side note here, we see the same thing happen to D'Angelo in season one when he shoots the guard, he gets sent to the low rises. Right. The pit, which is, and he's upset because he said, I've had a tower since last summer. Yeah. And they said, well, not anymore. And he says, you might have the tower again. Yeah. You get your mind to shit. Yeah. Um, so third concept here to think about with a disciplinary society and Foucault is the idea of the panopticon or panopticism. Uh, so the panopticon is a concept in which a prison guard stands in a single tower through which he can see all the prisoners at once, but the prisoners cannot see the guard or the other prisoners, and they cannot communicate with the guard or the other prisoners. Hmm. So the idea there is that they will feel constantly observed. Okay. And that is what is supposed to keep them, like, acting properly or whatever, like, keep them in line. Um, It's a measure to enforce docility. So... Like, I don't think it's a perfect metaphor for the wire, but I think that we do see a little bit of panopticon uh, at work in various ways. Like, for instance, when Stringer says it's the dropping of the bodies that bring the attention of the police. Yeah. It's because he's aware the police are always watching. Right. Well, and I think that panopticon notion is actually used in literature a fair bit. So in... In 1984, it's about Big Brother watching Yeah. in The Handmaid's Tale. So these are, of course, dystopic novels. But in The Handmaid's Tale, they talk about the eyes and who's an eye. And for me in The Wire, uh, in the police department in the first season, when they've got a leak and a, and a, a rat that's reporting to the commissioner... That's, to me, an example of a panopticon, yeah, too. There's an, somebody has infiltrated them and is watching them without them being able to see who it is. Well, and Marlowe knows that he's being surveilled yeah. the whole time that he's operating. So he has to come up with all these unusual ways of communicating, like clock photos. And he actually, in a lot of ways, is kind of the panopticon flipped because he holds court in an open courtroom that or an open courtyard where he knows he is the one that's being watched he puts himself on the stage to be watched but is also very much aware and is performing for that watch yeah well and one other instance would be i think when they institute the special program for the bad kids at school yeah they don't sit in a normal classroom setup they sit in a circle and Mm -hmm. that is a way of being able to see everybody at once Like, you could say, you know, the positive side of it is that everyone can see everyone and you can all talk and look, make eye contact as you're talking, but it's also about being able to see what everyone is doing at once. Yeah. Because when you can't see that, we saw Presbo um, deal with, like, the road seating and that's how the girl got slashed in the face. Right. 
That's right. Because he couldn't see what was he happening. He couldn't see what was happening. The other person who often sort of stands in the middle of the people is Gus in the newsroom. Yeah. He's yeah. often standing up and showing himself sort of in the middle of things to hold court. But, of course, it fails him in the end. Yeah. Poor Gus. Poor Gus. Um, one other thought that I had, and I don't know, maybe this is too much of a stretch, but I kind of thought, like, does the series position us, the viewer, as standing in that tower? Hmm. Because we've talked a little bit about the Dickensian aspect and how there's um, such granular detail about each element of society. So are we standing in the tower and see everybody at once, but they are not intercommunicating as we see time and time again when there's these um, breakdowns between, like, the police and the school system or whatever yeah like oh to me like the example of randy being a snitch is one of the most obvious examples of that where we can see everything but we are left like we're we obviously don't have any control yeah so we watch it fail yeah well and that's kind of the sad and dramatic irony is that we do see everything happening at the same time but like maybe we as the viewer are on the other side like we are in our own cellular space limited constricted rights to Mm -hmm. or um you know to affect any change and then by the end of the series nothing is better yeah exactly yeah well and i mean all of this really does just kind of raise the question should crime be punished or should it be rehabilitated yeah And even with the police, like, should they be punishing McNulty or should they be trying to bring him in? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know what the right answer is to that. No. You know more about that than I do. Well, I mean, I have my own opinions on it. I'm sure lots of people would disagree. But I also think, here's a question for you. Are we moving back to the punishment as spectacle with social media and videos and the fact that we can Facebook Live or Snapchat or post a video of these sort of, you know, like that cop example in Baltimore who's assaulting an unarmed man. Yeah. Was he doing that punishment? Like, surely in this day and age, you know that that's going to go viral. There must be a part of him that is willing to make that a spectacle maybe but i feel like it's more we are creating the spectacle as the public Hmm. but it's to draw attention to the horror of physical punishment right um so i i don't know i'm not sure that's what's so interesting about the wire existing in that really narrow slice of technology that it does is that you know, Presbo cold cocking the kid, if that had happened now, there would be many videos of that. Yeah. And, like, what what I think is good is that that has the ability to disrupt the power narrative that Foucault talks about, where it mm-hmm. is, um, you know, the people writing the story yeah. get to say what the truth is. Yeah. Well, and even, like, that podcast Ear Hustle, where they were able to produce a podcast from inside Rikers. Oh, I don't know that podcast. Oh, it's really good. Ooh. And it's uh, it's done by the same people who do This American Life and all that jazz. Um, but yeah, they co-produce it with a guy who's like in Rikers 
for life, I think. And he talks about the prison culture and what's happening in prisons. But of course, any episode that gets released has to be run by the people who run the prison right, first. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with, like, even though we say that the prison is about punishing the soul rather than the body, there is a large focus on the body in prison in The Wire, and we see that, like, with Omar, for instance, mm-hmm. when he has to tie phone books around himself. Yeah. Um, or, uh, I'm not sure what another example would be off the well, top of Ziggy, my head. Ziggy is positioned as very physically vulnerable. In prison. In prison. Yeah. And then, um, just, like, how can the body be luxuriated upon in prison? Like, Avon seems to have everything going well for him. He has, like, fried chicken, and he has a PlayStation, and he has whatever he seems to Weebae want. Weebae has his fish. Weebae has – well, we can't say that's his working out well because <laughs> they get trashed every time. And that really upsets me, actually. Yeah, that was sad. Um, so, like, if other people out there have thoughts on this. We yeah, love we'd love it. to hear from you. Tell us your thoughts on Foucault. This is my first toe dip into Foucault. Even, I don't know how I missed it. I'm sure it was assigned reading to me. <laughs> you probably and, didn't do the And I obviously reading. didn't do the readings. But uh, yeah, so thanks uh, for putting this together, Cal. This was a really good discussion. Okay, great. Uh, so we'll see you next time. Way, Way down, down in the hole. hole.